Lord God, Heavenly Father, teach us to live by faith like the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. Teach us to live with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now seated at your right hand. So even as we live by faith, let us this morning read these words of John in faith, looking to Jesus. And let these words once again teach us to see him more clearly, that we might trust in him with our lives, might hope in him for our eternal salvation, that we might rejoice in him each and every day, that we point our, our friends and our neighbors to him as the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, a couple of things. Well, I guess we'll just get started. So any questions from any time that you want to ask a question from? Anything that you're wondering about or that's on your mind that you're confused by? Okay, I have been at, yes, Michelle. On the cross. On the cross, yes. Good place to start. Yes. Easy, right? Yeah. Right. So, uh, so on the cross, who died on the cross? Jesus. Yeah, that was an easy one to get you started, right? Okay. Now, remember, when we think about Jesus, how many Jesuses do we think about? How many Jesuses are there? One. one. There's one Jesus. So there's one person. Right? And you guys were saying two because in that one person are two natures. Okay? So the question is, which nature died on the cross? That's, that gets to be the issue, right? Because the two natures... Uh-oh. Greetings and salutations. Since we are giving thanks and acknowledging all of our teachers here and our Savior this morning, I'd also like to acknowledge this guy and uh, say thank you for all the teaching that you do. It is truly a blessing. It is certainly, uh, he has set standards that, nah, I'm never going to get there. So, uh, but, uh, but thank you very much thank for your you. thorough teaching and your faithfulness and You've been at it for quite a while, and this is just a little something from the congregation. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. As a way to say thanks, keep plugging away, and um, now you get to start confirmation again. So that's right. Because of you. So. <laughs> okay. No. Thank you very much. Appreciate thank you. It. Sorry for the interruption. Back to the regularly scheduled program. Okay. So, so what happens in two days is the changes of Christ are okay, human or man, and divine. Okay? So, when the one person Jesus does anything, which natures are involved? Both. Right? You can't say Jesus did this as the human Jesus, and he did that as divine Jesus. Because how many Jesuses do you have? There's only one Jesus. And everything that one Jesus does, he does according to both. He does with both natures. But we talk about it with the words according to, meaning the nature that is apparent. So he dies according to his human nature, but when he, when the person Jesus dies, which natures are involved? Both. So now what happens is the Son of God dies on the cross, and he is forsaken by the Father, and the word we use is he's separated from God. So now we have God separated from God. How does that happen? That's the question. We have no idea. That's just one of those things that we have no idea. The scriptures teach it over and over and over that it does happen, that Christ suffers in both natures. He suffers for the sins of the world, right? The very holy Lamb of God suffers, that's divine talk, suffers for the sins of the world. He bleeds and dies, that's human talk. So he dies, one Christ, two natures, for the sins of the world. How does that mechanically work? How does that spiritually work? I have no idea. I'm not God. 
right? These are just some, certain things in the scriptures that aren't explained. They're simply proclaimed. They're simply taught. Okay? So um, this is one of those questions where uh, we kind of just have to confess what the scriptures say and let God work out the details. Because I don't know. Right? I don't know. But we do want to make sure we do confess this. If you go to, um, I just want to show you this. I know we've gone over this before, but Acts 20, verse 28 is one of the passages to remember about this. Acts 20, verse 28. The book of Acts is right after John. So if you're in John, it's just the next book. You're good to go. Okay, Acts 20, verse 28. Um, this is Paul talking to the Ephesian pastors as he's about ready to go, as Paul is ready to go to Jerusalem and he will not see the Ephesian pastors again. Um, he's finished his missionary journeys. Basically, he's heading back to, Rome, to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested um, and then he's going to go to Rome, eventually stand trial and he's going to be murdered. So he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders and this is what he tells them. So Acts 20, verse 28. Someone read that for us. Did you hear that? The church of God, which he, meaning God, obtained with his, meaning God, own blood. Okay? So in Acts 20, 28, God has blood. How does God have blood? See, this is the confession of the natures of Christ. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, has blood. Right? In his divine essence, does he have blood? Does God the Father have blood? No. Does God the Holy Spirit have blood? No. The second person in the Trinity, in the incarnation, has blood. So what we see is that the scriptures teach us, in his death and resurrection, he is God and he has blood. He has human traits. So we simply confess that. So how he separated from Father, I don't know. How that works, I don't know. But he says it is, and we want to make sure we don't answer the question by saying, well, he stopped being God for a second. Because that's what some people say. Some people answer the question by saying, on the cross, Jesus lost his divinity. All right? We don't say that. Because the scriptures don't teach that. As a matter of fact, they explicitly teach that he dies as God. Okay? Does that make sense? So basically what we're trying to say is don't answer the, the question by going to an error. That's bad. You have to confess what scriptures teach and let the questions kind of go, oh. Susan? That the same unsolved mystery as to how Jesus comes out of the tomb, whether he raised himself or... Well, that's not so much as an unsolved mystery. It's just the, the scriptures teach in different ways. Um, the scriptures teach explicitly the Father raises the Son. It also teaches explicitly the Son raises Himself. So um, it's, it's a little bit different kind of mystery in that it just says that the whole Trinity is involved in the resurrection of Christ. Right? So it just talks about it in different ways. That's the other thing in all this. Don't forget that God is Trinity. So sometimes we're talking about Father's point of view, Spirit point of view. And we'll get that to that in John 4. If you ever read John 4 today, we'll run into a little bit of that. Okay? Any other questions? I do want to revisit one thing from last week because I've heard there's a little bit of confusion in the, in the room. Um, the question was, how did Adam and Eve fall into sin or how are they able to fall into sin? And some people, I guess, thought that I said that it was God's fault. I just want to clarify that. God does not cause sin. Okay? Is that clear? God is not the cause of sin. According to scripture, when you're talking about cause of sin, it doesn't, scripture never tells us the cause of like sin in general. What it does say is that Adam and Eve sinned because of the, the serpent deceived them. 
right? 1 Corinthians 11.3 says that Eve was deceived by the serpent. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says that Eve was deceived by the serpent. So how did Adam and Eve sin? They were deceived by the serpent and they sinned. That's what we know, okay? Now, the question of what, who's the cause of sin in general, well, we know God is, does not cause sin because he's not tempted by sin and he's not evil, right? But the scriptures do not explain how Satan fell or any of that kind of stuff. It simply records that Satan fell. It records that Adam and Eve were deceived and sinned. And then it records what God did in order to save us from that sin. Okay, so that's what I was trying to get us to, is to say mm -hmm. that we don't know the cause of sin, but we do know God's solution to sin. That God in Christ reconciles the world unto himself. Okay? And that this was not, sin did not catch God off guard. Right? When Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't go, didn't see that coming. Right? And so that's some of the text we were talking about last week was that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world, according to Revelation 13. That you were predestined to be saved because God loved you before the foundation of the world. Right? So all of this is under God's almighty, omnipotent care, and he's working all things so, towards your salvation, oddly enough, or for the church's salvation. Okay? Karen? And just because we talked about so many things right. last week, so why they were deceived, we said we don't know. Is we, that correct? Well, why is a strange question. Why? What do you mean by why? why? The reason that I, the question even started was because I thought they were perfect. They were created without sin in the image of God. So if, if you don't have sin, how can you be deceived? That that, and that's the question we can't answer. Okay. The, the mechanics of how and why, it, all we can say is that, scripturally speaking, they were deceived by the serpent. Because I'm deceived because I covet. Because you have concupiscence. You have original sin. Yeah. Right? So I, they mean, did so, I know, so I'm trying to put... Yeah. reasons why I sinned. Don't know. Yeah. Don't know. But Adam and Eve did have free will. Like well, the scriptures don't say that. The scriptures don't say they had free will. So we're not going to necessarily say they did either. Or they didn't. It doesn't say. But we do. Mm, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's why, I mean, they couldn't just, God didn't make them as robots who could always choose the right thing. They still had okay, so, choices, right? Okay, so when we get into, well, that's, okay. So when we get into the issue of free will, we get into several different, uh, very complicated ideas. And we're going to, you know. Those... We don't have to, I pretend I didn't say it. No, no, no. <laughs> so free will is a big issue because it, it, involves, it involves both two main, two huge ideas. One of which is will, who is a good friend of mine, and, and one of which is free. Okay, and both of those words have huge implications and can mean varied things. The way you talk about it, um, if you are asking whether or not Adam and Eve or even us have the ability to choose, the answer is yes. You chose to come to Bible study, which you're now regretting, right? <laughs> you you can choose to doodle on your paper or you can choose to write down the answers to the questions, right? You can choose, I mean, a billion different things. You can choose. Did Adam and Eve choose to sin? It appears so, according to the narrative of Scripture, right? Eve was de deceived. She ate it and she gave it to her husband. That seems like she's doing something, right? She's not a robot with no will. Um, so she's, she's able to choose. Um, and then freedom is another huge issue. So what we want to say is in Scripture, yes, humans have the ability to choose. And we are responsible for our choices. You are guilty for making bad choices. Right? You can't ponder off on somebody else and say, well, I'm a robot. God made me sin. You can't do that. Right. And that's exactly why we can say this. Because they tried this. When they sinned, 
God showed up. He's like, what are you doing? And, I, and Adam's like, well, it's not my fault. The woman you gave. The woman you gave. It's your fault. And, and, and what did God say? No. You're responsible. And because of your sin, you will have to work the ground and it will not yield you fruit according to your labor. Right? You will suffer all the days of your life. It's the most terrifying passage. It's absolutely terrifying. Right? So, so one thing we have to be very clear on is when we say, do we have a free will? The answer is, if we're talking about the ability to choose, the answer is yes, we choose and we are responsible for our choices. Eve tried the same game, right? The serpent. And God said, no, you're responsible for your choice and you will pay for it. Right? So when we're talking about whether or not humans have free will, the answer is when it comes to whether or not we choose, yes, we do, and we are responsible for our choices. Does that make sense? Yeah? And you're not allowed to play the blame game. What are the causes of your sin? The devil, the world, and your sinful self. When you give in to the devil's temptation, who gets the blame? You do. When you give in to the world's temptation, who gets the blame? You do. And when you give in to your sinful self, who gets the blame? You do. Right? That's the law. So if we're talking about free will, in that, in that term, the answer is absolutely yes. Every human has the ability to choose, and you are responsible for the choices that you make. Now, when it comes to freedom, that's a different issue. Because what's happened in original sin, the original sin has killed our ability to make choices that are pleasing to God. So you are not free in your will to choose to follow God before God has set you free by his Holy Spirit. So when you are born in original sin, you do not have the freedom of will to choose good things. Does that make sense? Okay. So they just had will. So in, well, we're not talking about Adam and Eve. I'm talking about us. I don't know Adam and Eve. I just know us. So after Adam and Eve messed the whole thing up, and that's, that's the whole, I don't know how to explain that. But once that happened, every child born to Adam and Eve are born in original sin and are born without the ability to choose to please God. Okay? But there are entire denominations that preach that you can do that. Oh yeah, there are, there are lots of denominations that, and a lot of people who would preach against what I'm saying. Um, so let's go to, let's just look. Instead of, don't believe me. Go to Romans 3. <laughs> Verse 10. Well, we'll start with 9. Romans 3, 9, and 10. Or in 11. And 12. You just keep going. Okay, Romans 3, 9. Let's read through 11. 9 through 11. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. And as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Okay, so the, it, he just keeps going. So what, the point of Romans 1, well, after the introduction, of Romans 1, 18 through 3, 19, is that every single person who is born sins. And they are a slave to that sin. They are enslaved to sin and their will is bound to only and always sin. Okay? That's, that's what scripture teaches over and over. So in original sin, we do not have free will. It's gone. That's one of the things that sin takes from you is your freedom. Okay? So what happens, according to like Galatians 5, it says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. In John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So what's happened is our will has been set free from only sinning 
And now you are free to love and serve. Okay? So the freedom that Christ has given you is not freedom to sin. No, that's not freedom. That's bondage. That's slavery. He has set you free in order to love and serve. So now you are free because of the Holy Spirit living in you by your baptism, by the Lord's Supper, by hearing the word. The Holy Spirit lives in you and is teaching you to obey the will of God. So now your renewed will delights in God's will. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in you. So now when you choose, right? Because we still have the ability to choose and you're responsible for that choice. The Holy Spirit is going to teach you to make decisions that are pleasing to God. And those decisions pleasing to God are to love God and love your neighbor. See, before Christ, you are enslaved to only sin. Now in Christ, you have been set free free to love and serve. However, and this is where you, okay, stick with me. Go to Romans chapter 6, since we're already in Romans. Romans 6 verse 18. Romans 6, verse 18. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Okay, so you've been set free from sin and have become slaves. Because remember, slavery, the basis of slavery is that you do not... um, uh, mm, Do not obey your will. You obey the will of your master. And what Paul is saying is, you read all of Romans 6 and get this, your old master was sin and that leads to, your new master is Jesus and that leads to righteousness. So this is why freedom of will gets to be a weird topic because what do you mean by freedom? Does it mean freedom to do whatever I want? That's not freedom. That's slavery. That's sin. The freedom we have is to do what God wants. And that is life and salvation. Okay? So that's why free will is kind of a weird discussion to have. Because if someone says you are free to choose whether you want to believe in God or not, the answer is I'm not free to do that. Right? I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit of God can change my sinful heart to a believing heart. Right? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. I can't do that. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, light into the good sanctified and kept going through faith. In the same way he calls together light and sanctifies a whole Christian church on earth, right? This is the Spirit's working. It's not us working. It's the Spirit working to change my mind. So if someone says we have free will to choose to believe or not to believe, the answer is no. But you are responsible for your decisions. Right? That's why God holds us guilty of our sins. Does that make sense? Questions? Thoughts? Roger? I was going to say, there is nothing free. We can't diminish the price that was paid on the cross. Right, and then free means a different thing, which means it's... It's not free. It's not cheap. It's, it's at the cost of God's own blood, right? That's exactly right. Okay? Other thoughts or questions or clarifications? or Okay. Anything else? If you don't get it, it's okay. One of us will ask again. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it again, I promise. It's, it's, these things are very, very hard. And honestly, as, as someone already said, these are the things that do um, draw lines in the sand between denominations. Okay? What I just said about we cannot 
choose to believe in God without the Holy Spirit doing it for us is actually what divides denominations. Okay? Luther, by the way, wrote an entire book on this. And it's not called the free will. It's called the bondage of the will. Who was written against a guy who wrote a book called the freedom of the will. And Luther said, no, we're not free. Okay? All right, so let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Um, remember, we are reading the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus. Um, and we've, we've worked through quite a bit already. Not a lot of verses, but a lot of theology and a lot of things. So just reviewing, well, maybe not. Let's just, let's just read, then we'll review. John 4, verses 20 through 26. John 4, 20 through 26. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you, what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, and the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is speaking, seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Thank you very much. Okay, so, um, number one, why does the conversation turn to worship? What had they been talking about? Her husbands. Her husbands. Uh-oh. Right? <laughs> How many husbands? Five. Five. And one she's with now is not her husband, which kind of implies he might be somebody else's husband. Okay? So they've just been talking about not good, right? Marriage. And now... She says, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Let's discuss the theology of worship. <laughs> really? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Why, why does she do this? Okay, actually, commentate, there are a lot of commentators that say she's trying to change the subject. She's like, well, you're into theology, let's discuss worship. Because <laughs> I don't want to talk about my life anymore, right? You've never done that, have you? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you meet your pastor somewhere, you're like, hey, how are you doing? He's like, so how are you up to? You're like, so how are things at church? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, actually, some commentators believe that she's just changing the subject. I don't think so. I mean, that's funny and that's nice. And she could have been in some ways, but th that's not the way the gospel runs. So, the way the gospel flows, it's not just a change of subject. Remember, the Samaritans. The Samaritans are considered by the Jews to be corrupt. Corrupt people. Corrupt Jews. They're corrupt for two reasons. The first is intermarriage. They intermarried with non-Jewish people. And the second is they took on some of their theology or their beliefs. Syncretism. That's a big fancy word to mean they worship more than just Yahweh. They've smushed worship of other things together with the worship of Yahweh and made a different worship that the Jews do not consider to be real worship. Okay? So they've intermarried with foreign people and they've smushed their worship together with foreign gods. These are the two main things that the Samaritans do that Jews find offensive. And so Jesus' conversation with the woman is about marriage and worship. Okay? Because the whole point is how can you, a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan? Okay? And then the conversation flows through those two main areas. So syncretism is, is the, we want to say, I don't know how to say it. Okay, so like the worship of many. But it's not polytheism worshiping different gods. It means you've taken aspects of other people's worship and ideas and smushed them into yours. Okay? 
That's kind of what's going on with syncretism. <clears throat> Samaritans didn't believe in the books of the prophets, so why does she identify him as a prophet? Because uh, Moses is a prophet. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, a uh, prophet will rise from among your brothers. So everybody who's looking for a prophet like Moses, but supersedes Moses. So she's saying, I perceive you're a prophet like Moses, which is why she then goes to worship. Because remember, Moses is the one who sets up the mountains for cursings and blessings. And that's where they trace their Mount Gerizim theology from is in Moses. So she's saying, okay, let's talk about worship. And I'm, I'm believing that you are from God like Moses. Maybe not that, that high exalted status, but something like that. So she's saying, if you're in the role of prophet, let's talk about prophet stuff. That's why. So prop, yeah, prophet is, um, prophet is used in the Torah. The office of prophet, as we think of it, isn't until later after the judges, right? But there are prophets in the Torah. Okay? Yes? See, now, I've always been taught that when she says this to him, what she's trying to do is maneuver the conversation into a theological argument and keep that the focus and find some theological justification for the life of sin. People will do this. They'll try to find excuses in the Bible to continue. Well, doesn't it say somewhere? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so that's another way to look at it. She's kind of moving the conversation to, well, you know, let's fight about worship and maybe... Now, there are... They do have a different reading of the Pentateuch, so there are... But even that reading would not justify her sinful life necessarily. Right. Might justify the Samaritans and what they do, but not her sinful behavior. Right, but if she can get the better of Jesus in a theological argument, then she could therefore discount anything yeah. to say about her life of sin. It's like, who are you? You can't answer right. this question, so who are you to say anything about how I live my life? Right. Good. That's a, yeah. Good. That's a good observation. So she's kind of yeah. She could be shifting the conversation. Yep. That's right. People do it all the time. Trust me. People do it all the time. I do it all the time. Right. <laughs> No, let's talk about a theological idea. Because I don't want to deal with what I have to change. Right? Good. Okay, now, real quickly. I know we have lots of extra time, so let's, let's do it now. Oh, no, we'll do it later. Number two, does God have a body? So if you look at um, verse 24, God is spirit. Does God have a body? Good. You guys are good theologians. Whenever the answer is God and body, the answer is Jesus. Okay? So, this is why I keep telling you, whenever God shows up in the Old Testament and has a body, who is that? That's Jesus. Okay? That's the second person of the Trinity. Okay? Does the first person of the Trinity that we call Father, does he have a body? Ever. No. Does the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, have a body? Ever? No. He appears as a dove, but he doesn't actually have a body. Okay? And the whole as a dove thing is kind of strange anyway. Um, In the Gospel of John, it's actually his descent is the dove, not his appearance is the dove. The way he descends is like a dove. One of my profs said, not like a falcon who's diving in to kill something, but like a dove that gently comes in. <laughs> and actually, that is what the text says. Is he descends as a dove would descend. So, as flame. You know, yeah, and he's got flame on their heads. So he appears, right? But, but it's not in a body like Jesus has a body. There's no place in the Bible where it says, and the Holy Spirit was enfleshed like it does with Jesus. God has a voice. His name is? Jesus. Does it say that somewhere, that every time God communicated with a, a human voice, that it was Jesus? Well, it says that God doesn't have a body. So God, this is, this is actually the proof passage that God is spirit. And spirit means, if you look at the history of the church, it means no body and no location. Called incorporal and non-local. That's what the church tradition says, and this is the verse. So, wait, okay, not trying to get no, it's fine. When the three men appeared from the Yeah, Abraham. Abraham, Genesis 18. Yeah. They were three men. It wasn't that the 
Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe well, some people, Augustine and others have taken that to be a representative of the Trinity, but the problem is later in the passage it says that one of them is Yahweh and the other two are angels. So um, it's, it can be a representative of the Trinity, but physically it's, it's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and two angels, according to the text. So, so um, but yes, historically the church has said this is a physical manifestation of God as Trinity to Abraham. So it's a revelation of God's nature. But physically speaking, it's, it's the Son of God and apparently two angels. But again, the word angel is a little... Go ahead. Oh, I, I wasn't actually going to say anything, but it's fun you pointed me. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the Malachi Adonai in the Old Testament? Yeah, so, so the Malachi Adonai or the, the Malachi Yahweh is always Jesus. So the, so the messenger of, of God, the messenger of the covenant, the, the angel of the Lord that shows up is Jesus. Um, more, more accurately, the second person of the Trinity. Or, as, we, as I've told you before, we call it the pre-incarnate Christ, right? The pre, the incarnation is the fancy church word for taking on flesh. So that's when he's born of the Virgin Mary, right? So when we say pre-incarnate, we're just saying before Christmas, if you want to use real colloquialisms, right? Before he was born of the Virgin Mary, before he was conceived of the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, before that, he still sometimes showed up with a body, and it's the second person of the Trinity that does that. If you want to, if you want to read a book, you can call, it's called Angelomorphic Christology. Just read the whole thing. You'll get it. Especially Fort Wayne people. That's a Fort Wayne guy right there. He was also a reader for my dissertation. So, yeah, great book by the way. Awesome book. So at Jesus' baptism, when Jesus yeah. is in the Jordan, right. God is says that God the Father himself. speaks. Yes. What? So does that happen if Jesus is the voice? Exactly. So when does God the Father speak outside of Jesus being there? Mount of Transfiguration. Where's Jesus? Now. He's there. Where's it? So he's about to choke. If he wants to be, he's got the fault. So, so the point is this, is that every time God speaks, he's speaking through Christ. That's true at the baptism. It's true at the transfiguration. It's true in John 12, is that the Father always speaks with Jesus being present. And it's because of Jesus the Father is speaking. Now, we are not going to get into the business of telling God the Father what he can or cannot do, right? We are simply confessing what Scripture normally teaches. When Moses, when Moses is in the cleft, yep. it's Jesus, Jesus walks by him. And Jesus talking to him. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. Which is the point of the prologue of the Gospel of John. Explicitly getting us back to that event with Moses and saying, no one has ever seen God. But the unique one, who is himself God, who is at the Father's side, that one has made the Father known. Well, John is going through great lengths to say, no one has ever seen God the Father, but the one who is at the Father's side, the unique one, that one is going to show you the Father. And the rest of the Gospel is Jesus showing us the Father. Right? So this is where all this theology stems from, is that the New Testament actually does this. Right? In Colossians 2.9, the fullness of the deity dwells in Christ bodily. Okay? So that's where all this theology is getting to. So God does not have a body outside of the person Jesus. Does Jesus still have a body? Or did he get rid of it after the resurrection? He ascended and he will return the same way he went up. So does he still have a body? Yes. Okay. So when you get to heaven and you see God, who are you looking at? Jesus. Okay? And when you see him, you will see the Father. Don't you know when you've seen me, you've seen the Father? That's what he says to his disciples. So, what's the point of all this? 
The point of all of this is you can't see an unseeable God. You can't know an unknowable God. You can't anything on anything God because he's too big. He's, it's too whatever you want to say, right? You can't even start describing it. But in Christ, God manifest. If you want to know God, get your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Even if he says, I have come to cause division. Okay, you don't have to like it. But he is God, right? So you learn, what does this mean? If you don't know what that means, if you've been to early church and you missed it, you got to go back because our seminarian preached on it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then make sure you're late servers and you'll figure it all out. Because seminary will tell you everything you need to know, right? Everything. Everything. All of it. Okay? Does this make sense? So, God the Father, not incarnate. God the Spirit, not incarnate. Second person Trinity, incarnate. Right? Cool? Good? All right, number three. Does it matter where you worship? Yes, yes, yes and no. no. Yes and no. Good. Welcome to, <laughs> welcome to Lutheran Theology. Absolutely and not at all. Okay, so she's like, she's like, I don't get it. You Jews say worship over there. We worship over here. What's, what's up with that? And Jesus says, Well, and in Matthew, he says we're two or more gathered in my name, but he doesn't say that here. What does he say? Look at his response. Go back to verse 21. What's that? He doesn't bite the bait. What does he do? Let's look at it. Woman. Okay, so go back to verse 21. Woman. Where have you heard him call someone woman before? What's that? His mother. His mother. Where? On the cross. On the cross, but not yet. We haven't gotten there. That's a 19. At the wedding of Cana, John chapter 2. She comes and goes, they're out of wine. And he goes, woman? <laughs> yeah, and then what does he say after he says woman? He talks about time. What does he do here? Woman? And it's a bad translation. I'll just tell you that right now. It's the hour. The same word as in chapter 2. The hour has not yet come. See, in both instances, they're trying to get him to focus on something. He goes, no, 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 no. It's not about that. It's about this. The hour has not yet come, but it is coming. And the true worship was the worship of the Father in spirit and truth. Well, you know who the truth is? In John 14, he's going to stand in front of his disciples and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? And then what he's going to say in, in, in the rest of 14, is going to go, and I'm going away, so the spirit is going to come and lead you into truth. And all of a sudden, this, these words that he speaks to this woman at the well are all coming around, right? And so what he's saying is, true worship of the Father happens here. Who worships the Father in spirit and truth? Who? Jesus does. Jesus is the true worshiper. He is the true worshiper. He fully submits himself to the Father's will and he does it. He fully obeys the law. Right? Full and true worship. The entire sacrificial system completed. All of the worship of the Old Testament completed. Right? God dwelling with man completed. 
It's all done by Christ. So if you want to worship, if you want to be a true worshiper, how do you do that? Right. You got to do it here. You got to do it with Christ. You got to do it in Christ. You mentioned previously that John kind of loops around. Yeah, he loops around. So then we got this woman thing. Uh huh. Right before that, we have destroyed this temple thing. Uh huh. That's right. Coming back where, okay, this is real worship here. He's kind of doing the same thing. See what happens in John 2? We have the woman, my hour is coming, and then the next episode you have is the cleansing of the temple. And now we have our and a discussion of the temple. And in both places, what does Jesus say in John 2? Destroy this temple in, in three days. I'll raise it up. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And he's like, three days, trust me. And then when he dies and he rises, the disciples go, oh, he was talking about his body. And when they replay this, they go, oh, he was talking about his death and resurrection. That's what it is. So does God care where you worship? Yeah. Where are you supposed to worship? In Christ. In Christ. I know this is hard to swallow. But one of the things we're going to learn in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is a location. He's the temple. He's the promised land. He's the dwelling of God. He's the house of God. What does that mean? How do you dwell in Christ? How do you live in Christ? I just read somebody recently that said, well, I just worship out in nature. Right. That's not the prescribed way of worship. There is, no. and, and you're not saying that. You're no, saying I'm saying the opposite of that. <laughs> you're right, yeah. Because, because how do you worship in Christ? Where he is. Word, sacrament, and other people gathered around those things. Right? What does he say? The, the Father seeks true worshipers. There's one who does this fully, and now the body of Christ comes together around him in word and sacrament to worship together. You can't worship alone. You get this? You can't worship alone. It's not possible. Nothing in the Bible teaches you to worship alone. It always teaches you to find other Christians and gather together, read the word, receive his sacraments, right? Confess your sins. You do it together as a group. Well, and being we're talking about worship, that's that's our problem with a lot of contemporary songs and stuff. They don't focus on Christ. They're more on feelings or whatever. Here's what I'm here to do. And you go, so? How <laughs> that help? Right, let's, let's not talk about us. Let's talk about what God does. That's worship. Right? So even the, even the German word, Gottesdienst, right? Have you ever heard that, Gottesdienst? The service of God. And the implication really in the German word is that God serves us. That you come here to receive from God the, the things you need, forgiveness, life, and salvation. And then do you have any part to play in that? Yeah. What happens when someone gives you eternal life? What do you do? You say thank you. You say thank you. This is great. Thanks. Right? That's your part. You come, you show up, and you go, well, the only thing I brought with me are a bunch of sins. And God says, well, I'll forgive those. And then you say, really? Oh, cool. Thanks. Right? That's actually how it works, is God comes to you and forgives your sins, and then you respond with thanks. And so, does he care where you worship? Yes. Exactly. No. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's in a building or if it's out in a tent or if it's out on the street corner. It doesn't matter. But it does matter that you are gathered where the rest of the saints are gathered. Right? 
See, he doesn't care what the building looks like necessarily. There are things we can do to make the building the best we can. But he's not all freaked out about whether it's across the street from the library or two blocks down from here, right? If the candles stay lit. Or if the candles stay lit or if the acolyte messes up. That doesn't end the service. It's okay, right? But he does care that we gather around word and sacrament as the body of Christ. He does. And then when you do that, you start asking, well, how does, how does God teach us to do that? And we have, a, we have a bunch of things in Scripture that teach us how we should do that. We have singing. We have liturgy. We have adornments. Right? We, and, and here's the thing. After Article 4 in the Augsburg Confession that talks about that we're saved by grace through faith because of what Christ has done, you know what it says? And in order to get these this gift of salvation, God has given to us the office of the Holy Ministry. Men through which these gifts come to us. So the other thing that we want is a pastor. So he could be the one who gives to us God's gifts of word and sacrament. So, so what you see is, is that it's always, God always seems to do this. It's, it's never as restrictive as you think and it's never as free as you think. Right? Just about the time we say, oh good, God doesn't care, I can do whatever I want. I'm going to go golf because I like to golf while I worship. God says, I think you misunderstood something. That's not what I'm talking about. And you say, well then, in order to worship, you have to do this and you have to do that and it doesn't count unless, and, you, and God goes, I think you misunderstood something. Right? And, and what we want to do is make sure all of our discussion of the worship start and end with Christ. And we learn from Him how to worship. Right? Does that make sense? You'll notice Christ doesn't walk around alone either. He calls people to Him. Okay? All right, it's late, but you guys came late, so I got an extra 20 minutes anyway, right? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, teach us to worship you in spirit and truth, that by the blood of Christ we come before you as sinners, trusting in the mercy that you give to us, that by your spirit we learn to trust your word and to put all of our hope in Jesus. And that we come to you also in prayer, knowing that you as our loving Heavenly Father listen to us as a father listens to his dear children. So teach us to live our lives as worshipers, trusting that you are our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who saves us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.